Hello, I am Joe Garrity of the Close-Up Foundation, and welcome to Building Bridges. Since 1977, the Close-Up Foundation has provided a teacher's program for all the educators that brought their students from across the nation to Washington, D.C. for a course on civic engagement and empowerment. Now, in an effort to stay in contact throughout the year, we're offering our Close-Up Teacher Program podcast, Building Bridges. Today on Building Bridges, in honor of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we will look back on the lessons of September 11th, 20 years later. Joining us today for this session are Mike Walter, Dr. Dan Wallace, Colonel Michael Cox, and Michael Botang. This session was recorded on August 25th, 2021. First up, Colonel Michael Cox describes what it was like to be in the Pentagon on that fateful morning. Mr. Cox, could you paint the picture of what your day was like on the morning on, on September 11th, 2001? Sure. I normally went to work and was at the office about six o'clock in the morning. I worked in Falls Church area. And because my boss, who was a colonel, an Air Force colonel, was in Sweden coordinating with some of the people there for the software radios that our program was uh, designing and developing, he had asked me to go to the Pentagon that morning to represent him in the general staff meeting. I went into the staff meeting at 7.30. The staff meeting was with three-star generals and equivalents. But because our program was being monitored and managed at that level, uh, we personally participated in it. When the first aircraft hit in New York, we knew immediately that that was not an accident. It was a terrorist attack. That was not in the normal flight path of a normal aircraft going in and out of the various airports around there. That was not in a normal flight path anywhere around there. And so when it hit, there was no doubt in anybody's mind at the Pentagon that was a terrorist attack. Thank you. Thank you. Please continue. As soon as we got finished with the staff meeting, we came out and were watching, literally standing there watching video of television coverage when the second plane hit the tower. And at that point... There again was not a question in anybody's mind that was a terrorist attack. This was two in the space of short periods of time. We did not know how many others were in the process. And so at that point, I started from where I had been there and people started reacting and and going to be prepared for whatever else might be coming. My responsibilities included going to the public relations office in the Pentagon Mm -hmm. to coordinate an issue that had been ongoing. Mm -hmm. I went to the public relations office, which was more on the north side of the Pentagon, in towards the inner side, inner rings. But the person that I was supposed to meet with wasn't there for whatever reason. I don't know. I never did find out. But because the individual was not there, Instead of being there for about 10 minutes and then going in the north side of the Pentagon over to the next meeting that I was going to, I instead went south in the Pentagon, went to the restroom. And as a result, 
when I was, I went on over to the meeting. As a result of that, I wasn't in the sector that got hit by the plane, literally. So basically, that meeting not coming up in terms of the, the public The timing, the public relations. Public relations saved, should I say, might have saved you? It, is, is that a good word It's a use? reasonably good chance, chance. That, that it saved my life. It saved your life. If anybody has been very close to where a fire suddenly erupts, mm -hmm. there's a pressure that literally comes and hits you. Oh, okay. Um, you've probably seen nuclear bombs when they go off. There's a pressure that goes out. Yes. And if you're in that area, mm -hmm. You feel that pressure. Okay, okay. This one was, we could not, we did not hear the, the plane crash into the Pentagon, but we felt that overpressure right. clear into the room where we were at. Okay. okay. And instantly, somebody said, what is going on? And they sent another colonel, I was still in the room, mm -hmm. out to find out what was going on into the front office of the, of the, uh, the office that we were working with. They had not got back to the small conference room the, where we were okay. when one of the security officers from the Pentagon came and knocked on the door. Since it was a classified briefing, we immediately shut the screen down. They opened the door and the security officer said, there is a bomb had apparently gone off in the Pentagon. They didn't know for sure. And run, don't walk get out of the Pentagon through the vehicular entrance to the center of the Pentagon. That's interesting. So, so his word was there was a bomb. But he didn't know he for didn't sure. He didn't know for sure. And he said to you guys, run, don't walk. <laughs> that is correct. I've always been taught, walk, don't run out of a fire. <laughs> this was run, don't walk. We don't know what else might happen. Interesting, interesting. Well, please continue. As a result of that, one person was dispatched to the front office as well to let them know. And we exited. We quickly locked up the, the classified stuff and hurried very quickly to the vehicular entrance into the center of the Pentagon and ran out. The south, it went to the south of the uh, Pentagon. There were people literally pouring out of the Pentagon from every possible direction at that point. And from the point we got most of the way out of the building, the vehicular entrance is at ground level, and it's a kind of an open area, but it's able to be enclosed if necessary. As we were running out, we heard constant sirens from that point on, for me, for the next three hours. Okay. I went to the south of the Pentagon. It wasn't known at that point exactly what had happened, mm -hmm. and we did not know until later. By the time we got out, we were notified that the interstate was shut down, the metro was shut down, all the roads immediately around the Pentagon were shut down because they didn't know if there were other activities going on right there that would have caused additional explosions or other attack. Ordinarily in the Pentagon, there are in the neighborhood of 28,000 people okay. working. It is a five-sided building. Mm -hmm. It has five inner circles, each one of them having offices kind of on both sides of the hallway, if you see what I'm saying. Yes, okay. That sector, that fifth of the Pentagon, had been chosen to be renovated okay. earlier. It was just finishing its 
renovation. They were still doing just a little bit of work in it, mm -hmm. but mostly it was ready for people to come back in and occupy. Okay. As I understand, there were 181 people in that sector. Mm -hmm. Possibly I would have been had I come <laughs> the direction I was planning to go. Okay. But in that sector, as opposed to over 5,000, probably 5,500 people would have been moved back into that area if it had been in a normal operation at that point. As a result, the plane came through two of the outer buildings and into the third building going into the towards the center of it and the explosion rocked that whole sector. The fires that broke out immediately continued on into that sector mm -hmm. and slightly into some of the other sectors, but they were fairly well, fairly quickly extinguished. An hour's worth of contemplating how much at war the United States really was that seriously and not knowing where in the world all of the stuff was going on. We knew that two towers had been hit in uh, New York. Mm -hmm. We knew the Pentagon at that point had been hit. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even learn that the plane had gone down in Pennsylvania until after I got back because, again, all of the cell phones, everything else was just tied up with communications. Because they had hit the Pentagon, I have been in numerous positions, one of which was the another facility where critical communications go even as high as to the President of the United States and functioned in a communications officer capacity. So when somebody attacks the Pentagon, that is very serious. Okay. They knew that, uh, we knew at that point in time that that was something that it literally could be one of the big nations uh, launching the attack. We knew it was terrorists at first, but who's behind the terrorists? We didn't know exactly what was happening. What was happening? We didn't know for sure at that point either whether enough of the planes had been, been able to get grounded uh, so that other facilities weren't being attacked using the same tactics that the terrorists used there. Yeah, talking about that, do, do I, there are lots of speculations around, but do, you, do we really know whether there were other planes that were bound to attack certain... Yes. Okay. We know of absolutely for sure another one okay because the president of the United States ordered all planes grounded mm -hmm. and that any plane that did not answer immediately mm -hmm. to that the orders were given in the Air Force who was flying protective cover for literally the United States at that point they were ordered to shoot them down if they didn't immediately land okay because they would they would know at that point that they'd been taken over by terrorists and they didn't know how much more damage was being could be caused they know for absolute certain that there was another plane went down in the center of the United States landed at the air, at the airport and in the process of deplaning they discovered names and so forth so they are positive that that one would have been taken over very shortly but because it got grounded so quickly they just managed to escape into the the public Oh, I see. There was another plane that they are about 80% confident that mm -hmm. they had terrorists on as well. Okay. They did not know for sure because they weren't able to quite nearly as accurately confirm that that plane had other terrorists on. And, uh, there may have been others. The orders were from the Pentagon from higher up to everybody that was in the Pentagon, Washington, D.C. area to go home stand by for further notice because at that point it did not appear 
by 11 o'clock, 10 at noon in that time frame, it did not appear that any additional attacks were going to immediately take place. Various of the military bases around the United States were on high alert, and there were Air Force aircraft flying cover for various places in the United States, especially over the Washington, D.C. area. And had anything attempted to try to do more damage, planes would have been shot down. There would have been other immediate defense of the, the local area, and they were armed and ready. We got the orders by noon. Again, I got back to my office at 11.30. We got orders by noon to disperse as quickly as we could and go home, but be prepared to come back as necessary. Some of my staff, I had already, at 11.30 when I got there, I ordered them, everybody else, to go home. One individual stayed with me. We secured everything, and I literally departed at noon to, we got orders at that point for everybody to go home. I drove at that point from where I had been parked, and I was able, again, the, the Washington Pentagon was still sealed off, but I was north of there, so I literally got on the roads and was able to get out by that point. There were some more vehicles moving again. <laughs> and, and this time, uh, it, it, it sounds like uh, I'm going to ask again, because now you are not walking to your office. No. You are driving, I'm assuming, to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. All right. So let me bring back that question again. Sure. What was the drive like? Heading from here to Pennsylvania, what has just transpired? What was going on through your mind? Through my mind and through the airwaves as I was listening on the radio, <laughs> I had been able to talk to my wife at 11.30, so she knew I was safe. She immediately notified my other relatives, some in Idaho, other places, and everything that I was okay and that I was going to be coming home. By that point, everybody was mostly in a sit-and-wait position because until that, they, that time, they didn't know. As I was starting to drive home, again, Pentagon area, right, that immediate area, cell phones still weren't working because of all of the emergency vehicles that were tr both trying to put fires out at the Pentagon, but as well trying to get the people out that had been injured and so forth that were still there. There were people injured, but the ones that died in the plane and the ones that were in the Pentagon area there, that was the 181, I believe it was. Going out, there was a lot of traffic on the, the roads going out. Other members of my family, I was able to, you know, comfort them. I had a, one of my grandsons, he was just really worried about his grandpa, and he wasn't able to even consider going to sleep that night until he talked with me on the phone. He was living in Utah at the time, and he was able to talk with me, and he was able to be calmed down at that point. I see. I see. This, this has been very great in-depth storyline of what really transpired. You are listening to Building Bridges. Next up, veteran D.C. journalist Mike Walter who witnessed the plane crashing into the Pentagon from outside the building. Normally, I uh, drive into work with my boss. We carpool. He had the day off. And so I figured, well, I can get in late. He's not going to be in the office. And so I was running behind schedule. And I was also going to go to a baseball game with my son that night. And so normally, I'm always dressed in a suit. And on that day, I had a polo shirt on and khakis. I was not prepared to be a journalist that day. I was just going to go in and look at some video. 
So I was driving into work. And as you know, Washington, D.C. traffic is just terrible. And so I was stuck in traffic, but I kept hearing what was going on in New York. And suddenly my whole attitude changed. I was like, this is a huge story. If I get into work before anybody else, they'll dispatch me to New York and I can go cover this huge story. But at the time, you know, the contours of what was actually happening was still kind of very iffy. I was listening to NPR and they're like, well, is it cloudy there? Why would a plane crash into a building? And and it was it was it a Cessna or was it, you know, and it, everything, there was a lot of confusion. But as the day, I mean, you know, the morning actually started to unfold. And then uh, President Bush came out and, and basically alluded to the fact that it was a terrorist attack. By this time, I was so frustrated because all I wanted to do was get into work. And, and finally, I started talking to myself. I'm like, you know, you need to calm down. You're going to have a heart attack. And so I rolled down the window. It was a beautiful day, clear blue skies. And I put my arm out, holding on to the, to the window and actually looked in that direction. And that's when I saw the plane and it was above me. And then it did this really kind of graceful, slow bank, but then started to speed up and it was diving. And I kept thinking to myself, oh my God, this, this plane's gonna crash, it's gonna crash. And, and then it did. And as you can imagine, the, you know, just I, the, the tingles going up and down your spine, just the shock of what you've just witnessed and it all happened like that. And I kept saying to myself, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But somehow that connection in the, in the gray matter, uh, it wasn't there. I didn't think, oh, I just witnessed a terrorist attack. That never even occurred to me. What I had witnessed was this horrific plane crash. And when it, the impact, I'll never forget it. The, the sound was this crunching of steel and this huge explosion and fireball. And, uh, and so you're just kind of in a trance watching this. And then suddenly it was broken because there was a woman in a couple of cars in front of me who rolled down her window and started screaming at everybody. You got to get out of here. You got to get out of here. You know, we've been attacked, a terrorist attack. And then, you know, it registered. And then I went into journalism mode, which is, you know, should I drive into work, which was about five minutes away, because people were going all over the place trying to get out, but roads didn't matter at the time, they were driving on grass and that sort of thing. And so the thought was, photographer come back out and cover this story, because obviously, this is gonna be the story that I've kind of covered this day. Or should I just pull over and wait for the photographer to come and meet me, which I thought was a better idea. So I did. I got out and I walked towards the Pentagon. And, you know, this is some distance. I was on Highway 27, which kind of is sloped, overlooking where the impact was. And as I started to walk towards the Pentagon, there were actually, I came across pieces of the wreckage. It had been flown, you know, back, thrown back that far. You know, your instinct is, you know, to kind of pick it up and examine it. But then, you know, as a journalist, I was like, you know, this is evidence. You can't touch this. And but later in the day, I do remember people were holding up pieces and getting pictures with the Pentagon behind them, which just made my stomach, uh, I, I wanted yeah. to throw up. But, uh, but then I went into reporter mode and that's what I did that day. As you know, that area of the Pentagon was under construction. They had some acetylene tanks there. And of course, you know, the fire came out and there was another secondary explosion when that went off and I almost jumped out of my skin. But then watching it crumble and and then, you know, the other thing that really stands out is I said this in interviews before. It was like a symphony of, of sirens. You know, it was just these sirens. It was on a loop. You know, it just kept going and going. And you kept seeing these emergency vehicles showing up and fire trucks. 
and then you looked and you're like, how, how could anyone survive this? You know, um, and I don't think there were a lot of survivors in that impact area. But, you know, the other thing that really struck me is watching these people streaming out of the Pentagon and then immediately them going into action and setting up triage units, you know, with these different flags, red and green and yellow to indicate, you know, how severely wounded people were. But you just they were set up and prepared, but you just didn't see a lot of people being brought out. I mean, there were some, obviously, but not many. At the end of the day, what are you thinking? I mean, how, what kind of an impact does this have on you? And how are you going forward? How are you doing your job? And, you know, what are your well, thoughts? That was one of the things, you know, I, I like I said, I was ill-equipped. I wasn't dressed as a journalist that day. I didn't have a notepad with me, a pen. I didn't have a phone. Uh, you know, I had this thought I'd going to go into work for a few hours and then go to this baseball game with my son. And so part of it was trying to get a you know, get somebody to lend me a phone. I mean, there was a phone booth at the gas station with a line of about 50, 60 people. Well, that's the other thing. Phones weren't really working at all that day. I ended up with a guy who worked for the secretary of the army and he had some kind of whiz bang phone. So I was able to call my wife and my boss and try and coordinate with the photographer. But, you know, the thing is you're, you're covering this story. And as you pointed out, you know, you're seeing this collapse. I mean, this is just such a cement fortress, the thought of that actually happening. And I'll never forget, I met this journalist who was with the Wall Street Journal that day. And he had just moved from New York and knew a lot of the people on Wall Street. That's what he covered, uh, who were dying that day. And, uh, and he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, all the people I know in New York, I think, are... are are dying today. And all the people I know in Washington, D.C. were in that building. And he goes, you know, this is the worst day of my life. And he goes, and this is going to be the biggest story you or I ever cover in our lifetimes. And he goes, you know, and the, and the towers have collapsed. I'm not even sure we'll make it on the front page of the newspaper tomorrow, because that's going to be the biggest story. And of course, you know, what happened in New York was the big story of that day. So the aftermath, you know, I, I know you had some struggles with it. Could you could you share some of that with us? Yeah, uh, I, I really did. I uh, uh, one of the moments of that day that stands out, um, as I said, you know, it was clogged with traffic. So there were a lot of people who witnessed what happened that day, but most of them escaped. You know, I mean, you can imagine the terror of three attacks and, and suddenly planes are raining from the sky. You know, am I safe? And so. Uh, I was one of the few people who pulled over and actually uh, stayed. And, and I gave my eyewitness accounts to a number of journalists. And as the day progressed, a public information officer from the Air Force came up to me and said, uh, look, I heard you witnessed it. The FBI wants to talk to people who actually saw the impact and, and get their recollections. And I remember saying, you know, I want to do everything I can to help. At least that's what I was hoping to formulate. But I said like one or two words and then just broke down in tears. I mean, I was sobbing like a baby and embarrassed. Uh, you know, here's a guy in uniform who's pretty buff. And here I am like this whimpering yeah. child. And I suddenly kind of unveiled my resume. I was like, no, this isn't like me. You know, I've, I've been in a war zone and I've covered this and that, you know, and and I'll never forget this. Uh, it's just one of those moments, you know, and I still even 20 years later, I still kind of tear up thinking about it. He just threw his arms around me and hugged me and said, uh, it's okay. It's okay. Um, you're in a state of shock. This is perfectly natural. You have nothing to be ashamed of. And that moment of compassion, um, you know, still resonates with me. But 
that was the beginning. You know, I remember, uh, you know, saying to the, the photographer I worked with that day before we left the site, said, hey, I just want to ask you a couple of questions on camera. And, and I remember one of the things I said was like, I just want this day to be over. I, I don't know if I'm, I can sleep tonight. And uh, he said, and he had a smile on his face. He said, uh, well, I don't know about the last part, but uh, this day will never be over because there'll be the one-year anniversary, the five-year anniversary. And because you'll be talking about this for the rest of your life. This is like Pearl Harbor. And we're talking about this on the 20-year anniversary. I have been talking about it for the rest of my life. I kind of feel like my life, there's, it's separated. There was life before 9-11, the life after. But I uh, had troubles with uh, trauma and uh, sleeping at night, haunted with nightmares. And just, I went into a deep depression and was just, uh, you know, in a fog, kind of gliding through life. Uh, but I threw myself into my work and I'm not sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing. I think in some ways it was a good thing. In some ways it was probably a bad thing because I became more and more immersed in this horrific story. And, and it's all I talked about. I remember one day I was at the breakfast table and I was mentioning to my wife, so I would find the most horrendous story about 9-11 and, oh, I just was missing the post and, you know, and I would share it with her. And I, uh, I remember at breakfast, her pointing to a Macy's ad and saying, oh, look, Macy's has got a big sale going on. And I remember how offended I was, you know, here I am talking about this really important thing. You're talking about a sale. And right after that, she said, uh, oh, and by the way, you and I are going on a date on Friday night. We're going to go out to dinner. So we went out to dinner on Friday night and she just read me the riot act. She's like, you know, I understand you're going through some things, but the little kids that we have have to believe there's hope. And you keep talking about all this depressing stuff. You know, you got to snap out of this. So I did. I got some counseling. And uh, one of the things that happened for me as I went through this dark, awkward fellowship for journalists and that was really uh, very, very helpful because it was a lot of journalists who covered wars who had gone through a lot of the same sort of thing I had. And, and you know, you can go talk to a therapist and say, you know, I saw it, but, you know, how can they say, oh, yeah, I completely understand. I, I went through the same thing yesterday. I mean, it's like it's, you know, there aren't a lot of people who experience what I experienced, but journalists who cover wars, they've seen a lot of the same kind of wars that I saw on that day. So that was very helpful. And then you you made it a project to help other people to deal with it, right? And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I made this documentary, um, Breaking News, Breaking Down, and um, and and it, it came out, and, and the uh, guy who edited it with me was like, I'm really proud of this. And I was like, I am too. He goes, but I'm not sure anybody really cares or anybody's going to go see this. And uh, he goes, it seems like it's inside baseball, you know, like, but the amazing thing was when we premiered it in Washington, D.C., it sold out and it's a short film. You know, the most of the, most of the people are going to see, you know, like these two hour dramas or whatever. But uh, it sold out to the extent that they had people actually sitting on the stairs leading up. It was obviously a fire hazard. They brought in uh, folding chairs as well. So it was a spillover crowd. But the thing that really struck me was when it was uh, when it was finally uh done and people could come up and, and visit with you afterwards the type of people who came up you know i had they were uh you know uh amts firefighters uh soldiers who'd fought in, in different wars as well as journalists and i i remember one one soldier told me he said you know it's really interesting he goes you know we don't have a lot in common 
but we're all in these trauma bubbles and they're all kind of, we're on our own little world, but we're connected by trauma. And he had a really interesting observation about that day for me. He said, he goes, you know, he was in the national guard and he got to Iraq and he said, you know, the thing is, he goes, when you're in civilian life, like I am, and then you're activated, you're activated. They say, you know, you're, you're going to go off to a war zone and you put on a different uniform and you get into a different, uh, you know, you get into a different persona and a preparation. He goes, you know, mentally you, he goes, you weren't activated that day. You know, he goes, a journalist, you're sent, you're activated on stories, but you weren't activated. And he goes, and that's why you struggle with this. I thought that was a really good observation. No, that's a great observation. And I will take this opportunity to highly recommend that documentary uh, can be, is it available on YouTube or how can people get it? You know what? Uh, it, it's it, we had a, a licensing deal with uh, with PBS, which was ten years, and obviously uh, that's up now. So uh, if they're interested, they can contact me. I've got DVDs. I can send them off to folks. Um, but the other thing that was really interesting about going around and showing that is just how many people came up and shared their stories about trauma with me. And uh, so I say it's not just about trauma. I think it's also about permission, because I think a lot of times people don't want to talk about their mental health struggles. And, you know, that was the thing that I really made me feel proud about. It was how many people actually opened up and talked about things that they'd never talked about for years. So journalists, as well as other people in other professions. Yeah, very important piece. All right, so we're coming up on the anniversary, the 20th anniversary. I'm sure you've given this some thought. What what are you thinking now as we get to the 20 year mark? You know, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. I, I wanna be an optimistic person, but I think for me, the lessons in the last 20 years are, are not good. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you, you look at Afghanistan, I mean, with withdrawing from there, I kind of think, you know, it, and I understand the motivation that went into it. Uh, and I understand the concept of revenge and when, you know, we've got to take out Al Qaeda, but I think about all the lost lives as a result of 9-11. Uh, um, I remember interviewing Amber Amundsen, her husband, Craig Amundsen was killed in the attack. And I literally interviewed her, I think three or four days after the attack. And I mean, you know, she was just, you know, a beaten woman. I mean, young woman, she had two young kids, but she felt so strongly that she wanted to do an interview with me because she's like, I know this pain and I know I don't want us to go to war. And I know Craig wouldn't want that. And I know that there's going to be another woman just like me, another mother in Afghanistan who's going to lose her husband and is going to have to raise two little kids. And it just breaks my heart that that's going to happen. So that's one of the things from, from 9-11, but I think even more disturbing for me is this whole fake news misinformation. I think it's, a lot of it is born of 9-11. I mean, I started to get, uh, you know, I, I think one of my first interviews about, you know, the, that 9-11 really didn't occur happened about three months after the attack. And uh, it was a French journalist who interviewed me about Thierry Maison's book. And... Um, and, you know, I just think that that's just kind of blossom and grown. And so those are the disturbing takeaways. And then the third is, you know, on 9-11, the days after 9-11, the you know, terrorist threat was, you know, would come externally. And now after January 6th, it, the terrorist t threats can come internally. And, and how do you combat that? So I think, you know, I, I'd like to be optimistic, but, but as I look at the landscape, I, you know, there's a lot of sad lessons from that day. Yeah. 
I know there's not a lot to be optimistic about, I guess. All right, Mike, thank you very much. We appreciate you taking the time and uh, we will send you the, the finished version of this podcast, uh, Building Bridges, and it should be out in the next week or so. And Joe, but, uh, uh, before I go, my condolences to your family, because I know you suffered on that day as well. And that's one yeah. of the heartbreaks is to, you know, I met so many people who lost so much. The real treasures in life are, are the people in our lives. And so uh, my thoughts to you and your family and all the people who suffered on that day. Well, I, I appreciate that, Mike. You are listening to Building Bridges. Can you share a little background on one of the 343 firemen who we lost on September 11, 2001? I certainly can, Dan. Battalion Chief Edward Garrity was 45 years old on September 11, 2001. A beautiful late summer morning in New York City, Chief Garrity was arriving for his shift. Figured to be a slow Tuesday morning in early September. The summer tourist crowds were gone, and it was too early for the start of a new season on Broadway. You see, Ed's Firehouse was known as the Pride of Midtown, right in the heart of Broadway at 8th Avenue and 48th Street. The New York football giants had been blown out on Monday Night Football, which was just fine with Ed because he was a Jets fan, like most of the folks I knew on Long Island but it probably meant that it would be a late night for many so the city would wake up slowly. The commute on the Long Island Railroad from Rockville Center would take about an hour or so, but Ed loved the time to focus on his work before the busy day in Midtown Manhattan. So before we go any further, Joe, can you please tell us about Ed growing up in the New York area? Who was that about? Ed grew up on Long Island in a town called Valley Stream, a short drive from one of my favorite places on the planet, Jones Beach, a masterpiece created by the dictator of public parks in New York, Robert Moses. And he certainly was a dictator. Long Island was the land of bars and beaches. All of my cousins on Long Island loved living there, including Ed. And most of them stayed there once they had grown up. Ed was one of my 32 cousins, 22 on the Garrity side, not including our five. One of my oldest cousins, very athletic, great basketball player, and could really throw a football. My brother and I had seen Ed play at the Nassau Coliseum as a high school senior when the Long Island All-Stars took on the All-Stars from New York City. So this was quite impressive for me. So Ed could do no wrong in my eyes. We had family reunions, and it would always be my older brother, and Ed's younger brother against me and Ed. And for once, I actually got a chance to beat my brother in a sporting activity. It was awesome. And yes, it was the only time I beat my brother in anything. And when he listens to this podcast, he'll be waiting for that admission. In the Garrity family, our grandfather always pushed the kids and grandkids to be firemen or some other job for the city. He was a dad during the Great Depression, and he always appreciated the stability and the benefits of working for the city. My dad's two brothers were firemen, as was his brother-in-law, and the same could be held true for the next generation. My dad, in fact, was the black sheep of the family 
as a lawyer for IBM. They were proud of him, but they couldn't understand why he just didn't want to join the FDNY. We never fully understood that mentality, but I do remember a day when I was out in Long Island in 1983 with Ed and his family. I had just graduated from college, and Ed took me for the afternoon, and we went to a cookout at Robert Moses State Park. It was a great day. I loved every second of it. The people were all very friendly and welcoming, and I could really appreciate the camaraderie. And they all looked up to Ed, who had already started to move up the ranks at just 27. I never really considered joining the FDNY, and it didn't register until later that he was recruiting me. But he was so low-key about it, and he would never apply pressure. For me, I was a political junkie, so I had DC in my blood. But I have thought many times, especially since 9-11, if I would have had what it takes to be a member of the FDNY, especially on that awful day. Yeah. With that said, take us back to September 11, 2001. What role did Battalion 9 and the Pride of Midtown play on 9-11? The chief of Battalion Number 9, like so many members of the FDNY that day, knew they certainly had what it took. Shortly after a shift change, the alarm rang out before 9 a.m. There was a plane that had crashed into the North Tower of one of New York City's famous Twin Towers. Coming from 8th Avenue and 48th Street in Midtown Manhattan, an alarm in the financial district would not necessarily require a response from the pride of Midtown, but this one was different. All hands on deck. As they raced down 9th Avenue toward the Twin Towers, they could see a second plane fly directly into the South Tower. Just a few minutes after the building was hit, Battalion 9 was on the scene and in the lobby of the South Tower, moving up to rescue as many people as possible. The last voice transmission from Chief Edward Garrity was on the 40th floor, calling up to another one of his guys on the 65th floor to see if more folks were coming down. The South Tower was the second one hit, but it was the first to fall. Ed's body was never found. One of the miracles of that horrible day was that the FDNY and the NYPD pulled off what may have been the greatest rescue mission of all time. They saved thousands of lives. Most of the people who died there were at or above where the planes hit, and they were completely cut off. There was no way to save them but almost everyone below where the planes hit was saved, except, of course, the 343 firemen, 60 police officers, and eight paramedics who went rushing into a burning building to save others. That number included 15 men from the Pride of Midtown, the most of any firehouse in New York City. Ed was a devout Catholic, and his family has been supported by their belief in a just and merciful God. I just know I can't imagine any last deed that could be more profound. His brother worked on the pile for months after the buildings came down. Four stories of burning debris 
took almost a year to clear away. Many people were never identified. The people that worked on the pile worked long shifts, day after day. The heat and the smoke from the burning embers made it impossible to see with their masks on. Most of the men took them off for hours at a time. Many of them, including my cousin, are suffering the consequences. But really, what choice did they have at the time? Now, at the 20th anniversary of September 11th, it is past time for our country to take care of these heroes, too. Thank you for joining us on Building Bridges. I want to thank our guest, Michael Botang, Colonel Michael Cox, Mike Walter, and Dr. Dan Wallace. I am Joe Garrity, the host of Building Bridges. Special thanks to our editor, Daniel Pineda, and David Moran for his original theme music. And for this special episode, I would like to end by thanking all first responders for doing truly what is God's work here on Earth. This has been Building Bridges, a close-up teacher program production, and thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.